Well, I came across a video this week that was pretty interesting to me, and it might be interesting to some of you as well. It was made by a gentleman named Ken Ham. Now, some of you guys might recognize the name Ken Ham. He's quite involved with uh, creation science, and he even has this uh, creation science museum down in Kentucky in the United States. And in this video, uh, Ken Ham was introducing his newest project that he's been working on. It's, and it's something quite spectacular. It's called Ark Encounter. Now, as you may be able to guess, the centerpiece of this new uh, Ark Encounter is a full-scale replica of Noah's Ark as it's described in the Bible. And so as you watch Ken kind of in the foreground announcing this new project, and you see in the background this massive, massive boat behind him, it's really this incredible thing to, to witness. Uh, the dimensions of it, just to kind of get you a, a, size of the, a, a sense of the scale of this thing, uh, the dimensions are incredible. So it's 510 feet long, which is about one and a half football fields. So that helps to kind of put it in perspective. Uh, it's 85 feet wide and 51 feet high. And it's just this massive structure that Ken's built in Kentucky. Now, I say that Ken's built this thing. It's quite obvious as you watch the video that this was not a one-person job uh, for Ken. So you see a whole bunch of people involved in the process. So everything from the, the artists that are kind of decorating the inside of the ark, the interiors, uh, making it look really nice, uh, to the huge crane that at one point is lowering in this massive section of the ark. And it's really this, this sight to behold. And so as, as I was watching this video and kind of seeing the construction crews and seeing all this stuff happen, I couldn't help but think about Noah and think about how difficult it must have been for him. Now, I'm not just talking about how physically difficult it was, although that no doubt uh, would have been the case, really difficult in that sense. Uh, but I'm talking about what it would have been like to wake up every morning, uh, to look out your window and to see no rain, to see no large bodies of water, to see no tidal waves coming at you, and start building an ark. And wake up the next morning and do the same thing, and wake up the next morning and do the same thing, and maybe one day you get a bit of rain, but it wouldn't be a flood, and continue to do this day after day, month after month, year after year. Uh, today we're going to be talking about what we do in circumstances that cause us to doubt the promise of God. Uh, what do we do when we, we know the promises of God, we know what God's told us in his word, and yet the circumstances in front of us cause us to call into question or, or to doubt what God said to us. Uh, this is exactly where we find Abram in, in Genesis chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn with me there to Genesis 15. It's found on page 10 of the Bibles in front of you. Or if you brought your own Bible, it's somewhere near, near the beginning. Uh, but we find Abram here in, in a situation where he's received some amazing promises from God. And so right from chapter 12 on to 14, God's been making these promises to Abram that are really incredible. So God said, for example, Abram, you're going to have offspring as numerous as the dust of the earth. Uh, and, and yet in chapter 15, Abram still doesn't have a child. God said to Abram, Abram, you're going to have this whole land of Canaan, this promised land before you is all going to be yours. It's going to be for your descendants. And yet at this point in the story, Abram doesn't have a legal claim to any part of the land actually. And so we find Abram in a place where he's going to be questioning the promises of God, but also reassured of God's faithfulness along the way. And as Abram learns on this faith journey, I hope that we can learn as well. But as we uh, begin to read. Let's just take them some time to come before God in prayer and ask him to be with us. Would you pray with me now? Father, we thank you that you're a God who loves us. We thank you that you're a God who is in relationship with us. 
And we thank you right now that you're God who has communicated to us through your word. Father, would you help us to listen to what you have to say to us and not only listen, but apply in a way that brings glory and honor to your name. We thank you for this time. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So just to give a bit of background, in chapter 14, if you remember last week, we met a whole bunch of characters. And so the chapter starts with a whole bunch of kings from the north coming and attacking a whole bunch of kings from the south. And and that kind of makes sense with our story because Lot's kind of caught up in that whole thing. So Abram's nephew Lot is captured by some of these kings. And so Abram goes on this mission to rescue his nephew Lot, and it's a successful mission. So they all come back, and it's, it's good times. And we meet a couple other characters, like the king of Sodom. We meet Melchizedek. And, and it seems like chapter 14, everybody and anybody is on the scene. Everybody's in the story. And yet in chapter 15, there's a big shift that happens. And in chapter 15, we're left with just Abram, and we're left with God. And, and we read these words about the encounter in Genesis chapter 15, starting at verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now we'll stop here for a moment, just kind of talk about what we've just read. God comes to Abram at the beginning of this chapter and says, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. In other words, God's saying, Abram, I am your protector, and I'm your provider. And you might say, well, why would God start a conversation like that? Why would God start speaking to Abram in this way? But when you look at the context in chapter 14, uh, it makes total sense that God would say these things to Abram. So as we just were talking briefly about, Abram's just come back from this this great victory in battle. He's went up in victory against these kings who have taken Lot captive, and he's rescued his nephew Lot, and, and he's won this great victory in battle. And there's this scene at the end of 14 where they're deciding to do what to do with the spoils of war. In other words, they've, they've won this battle, and there's, there's things that they've captured from the enemies, things that they've taken from the enemies, and there's this discussion about who's going to get what after the battle's done. And the king of Sodom, uh, at this point, comes on the scene, and he's a bit of a shifty character, and we're going to read more about him. Uh, but he's kind of talking to Abram, and he's kind of trying to negotiate, you know, what Abram might get from the battles, uh, and he's trying to give Abram a little portion of the reward. And listen to what Abram says to him. He says, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich. In other words, Abram says to the king of Sodom, I actually don't need anything from you because I have a God who's going to be giving me my reward. And so in this context, having just refused the reward of the king of Sodom, Abram is reassured by God of the reward that Abram's going to get from him. And so God says to him, I am your shield, I am your protector, your reward will be very great. So God's words to Abram actually make total sense within the context that he speaks them. What's interesting though, is the way in which Abram responds to God. And it's interesting for a couple of reasons. The first one is this. This is actually the first time 
that we have Abram's words recorded for us when he speaks to God. Uh, There's been times when God has spoken to Abram and Abram's acted according to that. But this is the first time that Abram actually voices anything to God. And it's also interesting because it seems as though the unshaking confidence that Abram's just had in chapter 14 is now called into question a little bit by what he says. Listen Listen to his words. He says, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. You can see the, the transition from 14, where Abram's lifted his hand to the Lord, and he's made this vow. And now in chapter 15, when it's just Abram before his God, he's starting to express a, a little bit of doubt in the promises of God. Your outline says this, Our faith grows when we acknowledge our circumstances, but know that God is bigger than our circumstances. I think Abram gets the first half of this right, and I think he really struggles with the second half, as we so often do. You see, I don't think it's wrong for Abram to acknowledge that he does not yet have a son, or does not yet have an heir. Uh, That's just kind of a matter of fact. I don't think it's wrong for us to bring our situations, to bring our circumstances to God without sugarcoating it, without trying to make it sound better than it is, and, and saying, God, this is what I've got before me right now. This is what I'm going through. I, I don't think it's wrong for Abram to acknowledge his circumstances, but where he does go wrong is where he assumes that his circumstances aren't going to change, and he's going to die with the promises being unfulfilled in terms of having a son. Abram says, I'm going to die without a child, and someone else is going to be my heir. You know, if God's promises are going to stay true that he's going to have offspring, the things that Abram's saying just don't line up with the promises that God has made. They just don't line up with the promises that God has made. And so what Abram's thinking is, is, is basically in line with the custom in ancient Near East where if someone was at a certain age and did not yet have a son, did not yet have an heir to inherit the family fortune in the family's land, What that couple would do is they would adopt someone from the household, usually a slave or some other member of the household, who would serve as the legal heir to the the family fortune, to the family's land and all of their possessions. And Abram is basically saying, it looks like this is going to be the case for me. And so it looks like there's someone named Eliezer that Abram's kind of picked out and said, you know, I'm not going to have a son, so this guy is going to be the one who kind of takes this thing forward. And, And it's just possible that Abram thought this was how God's going to be fulfilling his promises to him. But I think it's more likely that Abram's just here in a place of doubt. Uh, He's looking at himself, he's looking at his wife, and he's saying, I just don't see how this is happening. Looks like things are going to go a different way. And so in this moment of doubt, in this moment of of weakness, instead of scolding Abraham, or instead of God saying to Abram, Abram, I've told you once, uh, get with the program, uh, God doesn't do that, but he rather reassures Abram by repeating the promises that he's already made. Your outline says this for number two, our faith grows when we remind ourselves of the truth we already know. When we remind ourselves of the truth that we already know. It, it might surprise you to know that a lot of what God says to Abram in chapter 15 isn't new. I mean, there's some things that are new that God's saying here for the first time, but a lot of the stuff that God says to Abram is stuff that he's already said to him before. And so in Genesis chapter 13, Jonathan preached on this a few weeks ago. This is what God has already said to Abram. God says, look around from where you are, to the north and south, to the east and west, all the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. 
I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. And so here again we have God not saying anything new to Abram, but restating this promise that through Abram's son, he will have numerous descendants. Uh, But God doesn't just restate it to Abram. He does it in a way that I imagine would be pretty memorable. He calls him outside and and gets him to look at the stars. Now, when I was growing up, I used to go to camp in the summers. And in grade nine, I went to this skills and leadership training uh, camp session that was three weeks long in northern Ontario. And and it was this incredible, incredible three-week experience. But one of the memories that stood out to me and still stands out to me this day is is one of my experiences one night when our counselors woke us up at about two in the morning. They woke us up. It was just, we were just so disoriented. We didn't know what what time it was, where we were, or anything like that. But they said, come on, we're going on a hike. And so we all, uh, you know, pretend to be really angry and like, oh, come on. But we're probably pretty excited and, and, you know, anticipating what's going to happen. And we start going on this hike through the woods. And, And after about 20 minutes, we get to this clearing, probably the size of the sanctuary here. And, and we come out in the middle of it, and our counselors turn off the flashlights, and they say, okay, everybody look up at the sky. And it was incredible. Uh, a lot of us grow up in urban settings where we look up at the sky, and you know, maybe we see 10, 20 stars, we're pretty happy. Uh, there was a lot more than 10 or 20 stars on that night. If you've ever get the chance, and some of you have, have no doubt done this before, to go out into the middle of nowhere... Uh, into the pitch blackness uh, and and just see the night sky with no clouds when the moon's gone and just look into the stars. There's something incredible about it. And and there's something even more incredible when you know the God that created those stars and and who loves you. And and so I imagine anything that we've seen in our lifetime would have been way more incredible what Abram saw on that night as he looked into the stars. God says to him, Abram, can you number the stars because that's what your offspring is going to be like? And it's interesting because scientists have, have now estimated that in ideal conditions, uh, on the best of nights, with the best of eyesight, a human being can see about 3,000 3, stars. But, but I don't think that's the point of, of what God's saying. I don't think God's saying you're going to have 3,000 3, descendants. What God's saying is this, Abram, look at the stars and, and count them for me. And Abram looks up and he says, I don't even know where to start. And God says, that's what your offspring is going to be like. He says, Abram, if you were to see all your descendants, all your offspring in front of you in one moment of time, I'd ask you to count them and you'd say, I I don't even know where to start. God says to Abram something he's already said before, uh, but Abram needs to hear it again because so often we need to be reminded of the the promises of God. I, I want you to notice what doesn't happen here. What doesn't happen is Abram's circumstances don't change. Uh, It's not as if God says to Abram, Abram, by the way, uh, notice the stars, but also your wife just had a baby, and so you don't have to worry about this stuff anymore because your circumstances are now now what you want them to be. Abram's circumstances don't change, but he's reminded of the promises of God, and in that moment, he's strengthened through that. So often in our lives, we come across circumstances that we'd probably rather do without. Uh, There's things that we go through that we just think, man, if only something could change here, that would be incredible. And there's two pieces of good news for us. The first is this. We serve a God who is able to change our circumstances, and he he often does that in our lives through prayer and through other means. 
But the second piece of good news is that we have a God who is with us even when our circumstances don't change. But it's in those moments that we need to remind ourselves of the promises and the the things that God has said to us because if we don't remind ourselves of the promises of God, we start to live as if they're not true. Uh, We start to fall into despair. We start to live as if we don't have a heavenly father who cares cares for us and loves us. And so maybe it's a sickness that's persistent. Maybe it's a relationship that's been strained. Maybe it's, it's a job search and you've been looking and looking and it seems like no matter how hard you try, nothing seems to be going your way. And what we need in those situations is not to despair, but to remind ourselves of our Heavenly Father who loves us, who has promised not to leave us or forsake us, and who has great things in store for us. We need to be reminded because so often we live as if God's promises aren't true. And so as Abram looks at the stars, he's reminded of the promises of God. And the text says that he believed in God and God credited to him as righteousness. Now this sounds familiar. It's because Pastor Walter read Romans chapter 4 verse 3 where uh, Paul quotes this passage from Genesis. And he quotes it because it's just this amazing example that God's family are those who come to him by faith. It doesn't say Abram did enough good things and God accepted him. It says Abram believed in God and God counted it to him as righteousness. This reminder that for, even for Abram, our relationship with God was only ever on the basis of God's grace received through faith. And having been reminded of God's promises, Abram comes to have this faith in God. Now, if you ask me, this would be a pretty neat place to end the chapter. Right? Because we've had God's words to Abram. Abram's kind of doubting a little bit. God reassures Abram. And then there's this great statement that Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. You know, there's no loose ends. Everything's kind of set and, and we're good. But the text goes on. And so must we because we've got more to learn about how to, how to increase in faith in the midst of difficult circumstances. So if you would look at verse 7, we're going to continue reading uh, from chapter 15. And God said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half, and when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for four hundred years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age." And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So as I read through this story, and, and as I studied it and tried to think about it, I was really struggling to figure out how to make sense of the fact that in verse 6, it seems like Abram's got this belief in God and he's got this faith in God. And how to make sense with that, along with the fact that in verse 8, 
it sounds like Abram's already starting to question the promises of God again. You know, so in, in 1 through 6, Abram's kind of asked the question, God, I don't have any descendants. What, what's going to happen there? Am I going to die childless? And God's kind of sorted that out for Abram in, in his heart. Uh, but it seems like the next chapter, or the next part of the chapter, Abram's questioning now how this promise of the land is going to come about. And, and I think the reason for this is because Abram believes, and, and, and then he has doubts, and he believes, and, and he has doubts. Your outline says this, our faith grows when we recognize that faith is a journey. When we recognize that faith is a journey. You know, it's not just smooth sailing for Abram after, chapters, after verse 6. Uh, we're going to see actually that there's plenty of times where Abram is going to mess things up when it comes to trusting in God. And, and I think the way to make sense of this is maybe to think about it like this. We often talk about Christians as, as we call ourselves believers. And, and there's a sense that we, we say, you know, I'm a believer. I believe in God. But, but even for us who call ourselves believers, there's still a question that we need to ask ourselves every day. And that question is this. Are we going to trust God in the circumstances that we find ourselves in each and every day? Yes, we're believers. Yes, we believe in God. But every situation, every opportunity, every circumstance in our life is going to be another opportunity for us to exercise trust in God and his promises. And so Abram's a believer and he's growing in his faith and he's being sanctified, but there's still chances for him every day to exercise faith in God. And sometimes he's going to nail it, get it right, and other times uh, he's going to fail, but he's being sanctified along this process. I'm reminded of the man in John's gospel who says these words. I love them. He says, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. And I think, I think a lot of us can relate to this. Lord, I believe and, and yet, I'm having trouble trusting you in this area. Would you help me with that? Uh, and Abram's growing in this. I think it's encouraging at least to, to know that he, he's getting better. At the beginning of the, of the chapter, he says, God, I'm going to die childless. You know, he puts forward this situation that's incompatible with what God said. Here, here Abram doesn't deny that God's going to give him the land. He just questions how it's going to happen. Uh, so there's a bit of a difference, right? He doesn't say, you're not going to give me the land. He says, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And so again, there's still, I think, a shade of doubt in Abram's question, uh, but another opportunity for God to reassure Abram of the promises that he's made. And listen to these words of God as he uh, responds to Abram. He says, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And if that doesn't reassure you in a time of doubt, I don't know what will. Okay, that was a joke. Anyway, so there's, there's things in the Bible that, that as we read through it, uh, it it's going to remind us that the historical and cultural setting that, that these events are taking place in is totally different than the world that we live in today. And so there's going to be places where you read through your Bible, where you, you read something and you scratch your head and say, I don't have a clue what's going on or how that relates to what we just read. And there's going to be a sense in which we need to do the hard work of trying to understand the context uh, of that situation to understand what's being said. It's interesting, though, that God communicates to Abram in a way that Abram's going to understand. Uh, he doesn't communicate to Abram how, how we might understand. So he doesn't say, you know, God doesn't drop a legal document saying, you know, this is the land transfer. He speaks to Abram in a way that Abram's going to understand within his cultural setting. And we know that Abram understands because of the way that Abram responds to this, to this uh, request from God. So look at, look at the text. God says, Abram, bring me these animals. And it says, Abram not only brings the animals... But he cuts them in half, and he lays the halves opposite each other on the ground. 
Now, obviously, there's something going on to this that Abram understands what God's requesting and he recognizes that it's part of something bigger that, that's about to happen. And, and I think this is the context. What happened in the ancient Near East is that sometimes when a covenant was being made, there was a certain ceremony that would accompany this, uh, this covenant. And so what would happen is these animals would be brought forward. Uh, they would be slaughtered. They would be cut in half and kind of set up in a row along the ground. And depending on how many uh, how many animals they had or how big the, the covenant was, there'd be more or less animals. Uh, but that would be the setup for the covenant. And what would happen after that is the two people that were making the covenant would make their covenant vows. In other words, they'd say, by this covenant, I promise to do this, to do this, to do this, and this. And then the other person would stand up and say, on this, on this covenant, I promise to do this, 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 and this. Now, there were some uh, some variations of this. If one person was uh, stronger or mightier than the other, maybe only one person would make these covenant promises. Uh, but that was kind of the, the model, that you'd have the animal sacrifice happening, you'd have the covenant promises being made. And after the covenant promises were made, what would happen is both members of the covenant would pass through the pieces of the animals. And you might be thinking, that's kind of a strange thing to do. And it is strange, but there's symbolic meaning attached to this. And what would happen as the people passed through the animals, it would be them symbolically saying, may what happened to these animals happen to me if I am unfaithful to the covenant promises that I have just made. It's a way of making the covenant really solemn and serious to say, may what happened to these animals happen to me if I am unfaithful to this covenant that I have just made. And so we see a few examples of this in the scriptures. One of them uh, particularly helpful is Jeremiah 34, uh, starting at verse 18, when it says this. And the men who transgressed my covenant and do not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and pass between its parts. And I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives. Their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth. And so even though these, these parallels aren't exact, uh, even though the animals are a bit different, the, the situation is the same. So these people have entered into a covenant. They've cut a calf in half. They've passed through the calf. And now because they've been unfaithful to the covenant, it's called for the thing that happened to the calf to happen to them. And there's this, this pretty morbid language of the, their bodies being food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And it's, it's actually language that matches uh, verse 11 in chapter 15, it says, when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And so I think this is meant to be a pretty disturbing scene for us. It's supposed to kind of jolt us awake and say, this is serious stuff that's going on here. Uh, the, the imagery of the animals that have been slaughtered, the imagery of the, the, the vultures or the birds of prey hovering around these carcasses just really sets this scene of a terribly serious thing that's about to happen. And so with this covenant ceremony being set up, these are the words uh, that we read next. In verse 12, it says, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward they shall come out with great possessions." As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Your outline says this. Our faith grows when we embrace God's perfect timing. When we embrace God's perfect timing. 
There's a lot that's said here, but what's basically happening is God's giving Abram a picture of what the future looks like. What the future of the promises of God looks like as they're going to be unfolded in the course of time. And I think it's pretty safe to say that this probably isn't what Abram was expecting. Right? So when God says, Abram, I'm going to give you many descendants and I'm going to give you this land, I don't think Abram was thinking, yeah, but we'll probably have to do 400 years of slavery before we get any of it. Right? Abram's probably thinking that means lots of kids, lots of grandkids, maybe even some great grandkids, and we're probably going to be you know, buying up this land like, pretty quickly because there's going to be lots of us. And God says to Abram, Abram, it's going to happen a lot different than that. Now, it's interesting that Egypt is not mentioned explicitly in this text, but I imagine as I read that a lot of you guys were, the things were clicking, and you're thinking, oh, this is Egypt. This is when God's people go to Egypt, and they're, they're slaves in Egypt, and God rescues his people, and, and that's exactly the case. That's how this plays out in history. Uh, God's people will, will go to Egypt. They'll be servants of another nation, and God will rescue his people and bring them into the promised land. And, and the question is, how does this help Abram? How does this help Abram knowing this information? I think it helps him in this way. It helps him to adjust his expectations. Uh, If Abram's thinking this is how God's going to fulfill his promise, it's going to look like this. God's helping him by saying, Abram, actually it's going to look like this. So don't be worried when things don't look like you think they should look. In other words, when, when we see God's people in Egypt, when we see them as slaves of another nation, we look at that and instead of it being a sign that God's not fulfilling his promises... It's actually a sign that things are going according to God's plan and things are working according to God's purposes. Uh, God's giving Abram an opportunity to embrace his timing, to embrace his plan and his purpose rather than his own. Uh, This talk about God's timing is something that we often come across in our prayer lives, I think. Uh, It's going to be later on in the book of Genesis that Isaac will pray for his wife. He'll say, God, would you let my wife have, have a son? And God answers that prayer, the text tells us. But what we also notice is that from the time Isaac prays that prayer to the time that prayer is answered, about 20 years pass by. And and so from from God's perspective, Isaac prays, God answers, everything's good. From Isaac's perspective, I bet you it was pretty difficult in year 15 and year 16 uh, to keep praying. Uh, For some of us, that's probably where we are right now. We're, We're in year 15 of 20. And we're about ready to give up because God's timing is a lot different than we would plan it out ourselves. But we're called to continue trusting in the midst of God's timing. It's neat. Sometimes we'll look back on situations in our life and we'll see how God's answered a prayer. We'll see God's timing. We'll, we'll say, you know, God, if, if you had done things when I wanted you to do them, it would have been a total mess. And we'll recognize that God's timing is better than our timing. But if we're honest with ourselves, there's going to be other times in our life when we'll look at God's timing and we'll still be confused even in hindsight. When we'll say, God, I I don't know why you chose to do it at that time. I don't know why you answered that prayer in in that way. But even in those times, we're called to trust because God's purposes are are incredible. Uh, We might not ever know the reasons why things happen to us, but God does know. And he has a plan that's being worked out. And, and on this side of eternity, we won't be able to see that, but, but there will come a day when we're able to see uh, God's wisdom. Abram has the advantage here not only of knowing God's timing, he also gets one of the reasons for the way God acts and, and fulfilling his promises. And we see it in a little phrase uh, at the end of his, his speech. It says, the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. 
And what God's basically saying to Abram is this. There's nations that are living in the promised land at the time that Abram's living there. And God's saying, Abram, I'm not just going to drive these nations out arbitrarily. Uh, they, they're a people that will wait till their sins are stacked up upon itself until eventually God's justice will demand that these nations come under judgment. God's saying the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. Uh, I'm going to forbear with them. I'm going to be patient with them until my justice demands that judgment be done. And so that's what we see. And so when God's people exit Egypt and when they come into the promised land, a lot of people look at it and say, well, how arbitrary, how fickle that, you know, God's people get to come in and this poor nation that, that hasn't done anything wrong, this innocent people is getting driven out of their own land and nothing can be further from the truth. The Amorites and the people living in Canaan at that time were known for their violence. They were known for their cruelty. They were known for their perversion. And, and God's already forbeared with them these 400 years when his people are in are in Egypt. And so God's saying, trust my timing, trust my purposes. I know what I'm doing. There's nothing arbitrary. There's nothing meaningless about this. Uh, I'm going to do these things in my time. And so once again, Abraham's situation doesn't change, uh, but he's given a glimpse at to God's promises and God's timing, and, and that increases his faith as he journeys. But there's one more thing that, that Abraham sees, and I think it's the most important thing for us to see as well. Your outline says this, our faith grows when we look to our faithful God. Verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, the smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Okay, so here we have another place where we scratch our heads and say there's something going on here that's a little bit difficult to, to grasp on a first read. And, and we'll remember that the, the passing through the pieces of animals represented that someone would take an oath saying, may what happened to these animals happen to me if I am unfaithful to the promises I have made in this covenant. Well, what we have here, between, when this flaming torch and this or flaming, or smoking fire pot and this flaming torch passes between the pieces, we have none other than God's very presence passing through these animals. And I say that for a reason. It's not arbitrary. We look to how God reveals himself throughout the Old Testament. We're going to notice a pattern. So when Moses first encounters God in Exodus chapter 3, we read this. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning yet it was not consumed. Later, as God's people are wandering through the wilderness, we hear this, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they may travel by day and night. And finally, at, at this moment, as God's people approach Mount Sinai, ready to receive the law, it says this, Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire, and the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And so we see this pattern in the Old Testament where God reveals himself often through the means of fire and smoke. And one commentator was really helpful talking about it. He said that it's at the same time God's self-revelation as well as God's self-veiling. In other words, it's a way of, of God showing up and revealing himself, yet at the same time containing that element of mystery and that hiddenness of God's presence. It's, it's God's self-revelation and it's God's self-veiling, and it's God's own presence passing through these pieces. And here's where it's important that we don't miss the significance of what's going on. Through passing through the pieces, Abram, or God's saying to Abram, Abram, may what happened to these animals happen to me if I'm not faithful to my covenant with you. In other words, God's saying, I would die before I would be unfaithful to my covenant. God's saying, I will be faithful to what I have said. 
I think that's probably why God repeats himself in chapter 15. Uh, Because the greatest assurance God can give anyone is his word. When God says something, you can take that to the bank knowing it's going to happen. And I think that's why God repeats himself to Abram because he's saying, Abram, there's nothing greater I can do than tell you this is going to happen because there's nothing more sure in all this creation than my word. And here God gives this word expressing his character as a faithful God who would die before being faithless to his covenant. And as scriptures unfold, we see not only a God who is faithful, we see a God who is faithful when we are faithless. You see, when human beings entered into a relationship with God, when they entered into a covenant with God, they completely messed it up. Uh, we see this through the Old Testament, we see in the New Testament, we see it in our own lives today. When, when we've messed things up so bad, we've been unfaithful to God, and God says, not only will I die for my side of the covenant, but God sends his son to die for our side of the covenant. So that when we break our vows to God, when we pile up our sin as the Amorites did, God says, I'm not going to destroy you. I'm going to send my son to die for your sins. You see, the God who passed between the broken bodies and shed blood of the animals is the same God whose body was broken and blood was shed on the cross for your sins. And so when we think about faith, we should not be looking at ourselves saying, I just need to have more faith. Can I just muster up some faith? And we we tend to focus in on ourselves. When we want to increase our faith, we need to cast our eyes off ourselves and onto the God who is faithful. The God who in Christ laid down his life for us so that we might be in relationship with him. The God who says, I will die before I am unfaithful to my covenants. I will never be unfaithful to you. And so as we go on this faith journey, be reminded of the promises of God. Embrace God's timing. Know that this is a journey. Know all these things. But most of all, cast your eyes on the one who is faithful, knowing that he will lead you through. Would you stand with me now in closing prayer? Father God, we thank you that you are faithful. We thank you that you are faithful even when we are faithless and even when we fail to live up to the standards that you call us to. Jesus, we thank you for the sacrifice of the cross. We thank you for a new life and new relationship with you that extends into eternity. Help us to live lives that reflect the fact that you have loved us and given yourself for us. We love you, Lord. We just pray all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.